Moncrief on News Talk. Now, neuroscience is making all sorts of strides every day, particularly in relation to detecting and interpreting brain waves. And it's not just in the area of medicine that these advances are taking place. In the not-too-distant future, it may well be possible to send an email just by thinking about it. Nita Farahani is a professor at Duke University and the author of The Battle for Your Brain. Afternoon, Nita. Good afternoon. So, for a sensor that can be applied to the brain or to the skull, I suppose, what can it tell about what's going on inside your brain? Well, it could tell a good bit about what's going on inside your brain, but not your literal thoughts. So if we're talking about sensors that people wear as part of their everyday technology, sensors that are embedded into earbuds and headphones or tiny tattoos worn behind the ear, um, these sensors can pick up the electrical activity in the brain as you think thoughts, as you feel your feelings, as you imagine um, images in your mind. And with increasing sophistication of artificial intelligence, those patterns of electrical activity in your brain can be decoded to at least pick up some simple, what we say, brain states. Like, are you bored? Are you relaxed? Are you meditating? Are you stressed out? Um, Are you uh, paying attention or is your mind wandering? Are you tired? Uh, these kind of basic cognitive and affective states can be picked up um, and decoded pretty easily with these sensors. Mm. So from that, then I, I infer that the, the, the brain activity that represents I'm bored is the same, you know, in my brain as it is in your brain. Uh, yes and no. So every brain is a little bit different, and the way your brain processes information is different than the way my brain processes information. But these devices when you wear them, can be calibrated to your brain activity. So there's some baseline training you do when you first wear them um, that enable the algorithms, the artificial intelligence, uh, kind of pattern recognition to be able to decode what boredom looks like in Sean's brain versus what boredom looks like in Nita's brain. And there are similar patterns. There are similar brain waves that, um, you know, reflect different kinds of brain activity but there are small differences that can also be uh, decoded using more sophisticated algorithms. Mm. Now, obviously, lots of medical applications to this, and we'll get to that in, in a moment. But, but this is kind of science fiction stuff. Like, there's going to be uh, <laughs> AirPods that have brain sensors in them. There already are. So, I mean, already there are companies like NextSense and Emotive that are selling earbuds that allow you to listen to music and take a conference call, but also decode brain activity or pick up and track that brain activity. Companies from Meta to Apple and Google, Microsoft are investing in technology and acquiring a lot of these smaller neurotech companies to take their technology and be able to embed them in existing devices that are like AirPods and headphones. Mm, To what end? Well, a few <laughs> ideas. One is I think that, um, you know, I, I, if, if we take it kind of from the positive perspective, people yes. are pretty used to being able to track their heart rates and the number of steps they take, their sleep patterns, and even their body temperature. Um, and this has health applications and also just allows people to better know their own bodily functioning. Um, the same is true for our brains, where it's kind of extraordinary that We know so much about the rest of our health, but know virtually nothing about our own brain activity from where do you work best, uh, 
you know, did you actually get a good night and, and restful sleep the way that you think you did to whether or not you're going to have an epileptic seizure an hour from now. Brain sensors can be used for a lot of those different purposes or to help you meditate better. Okay. If you think about it from a corporate perspective, though, you know, it, it's kind of the last frontier of data. It's the the holy grail of data where companies for a very long time have been trying to figure out what we're thinking and feeling. And if they could have access to that information much more directly, um, it truly would be uh, the holy grail of information for them. Uh, which I suppose immediately people listening will go, oh my God, Mark Zuckerberg knows exactly what I'm thinking. I mean, like, is this on the level of Mark Zuckerberg knows it? Certain percentage well, of, I mean, of so his Mark Zuckerberg is the one who used that term. It's the holy grail. Right? <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg said that um, oh, neural interfaces, the holy grail of, you know, uh, the way in which we'll interact with all the rest of our technology. And on the one hand, you know, their vision is to use these brain sensors as the way in which we interact in virtual reality and augmented reality or how we update our status and, um, you know, tweets and uh, how we post things on Instagram. But I think that if you think about the business model of companies like Meta and Google, commodification of, of personal data is the business model that they've built. And so, mm. you know, giving access to brain data to truly have a much better sense of what people are, are thinking and feeling um, should worry us. It should worry us deeply given the past misuse of our data by those companies. Yeah. And would that interface also perhaps in time enable people to, you know, send a text on your phone, that kind of thing? Theoretically, yes. I mean, so already implanted neurotechnology enables people to do so. So people who have lost their ability to communicate, you know, if they're suffering from a neurodegenerative disorder like ALS, for example, Mm. with much more precise and much more, um, kind of sophisticated electrodes implanted in the brains of, of those individuals, they've been able to send text messages and interact with their computers, move a mouse around the screen. And the um, device that Meta has uh, been working on, they acquired a company called Control Labs. It's, uh, it, it picks up brain activity that is sent from your brain down your arm to your wrist, so your motor neuron activity and tries to decode your intention to type or swipe. And so the idea of that technology really is to ultimately decode your intention to send a text message or to post a status update and to allow you to do so virtually from your mind rather than literally typing it out. And for people, as you already mentioned, people with ALS or people with locked-in syndrome, is there a possibility there for people to communicate Absolutely. I mean, it's already happening and it's transformational for for those people. Um, And there's a lot of promising wearable neurotechnology rather than implanted neurotechnology that's also being developed for people with ALS or as what we call assistive technology. So there's a company, for example, called Cognition that is trying to develop and is in late stages of developing an augmented reality headset that's also picks up EEG, the electrical activity in the brain through electroencephalography. And the idea is to enable somebody with ALS or locked-in syndrome or other impairments that prevent them from being able to interact with their environment to do so directly from their brains. And, you know, for the millions of people who suffer from those, um, you know, uh, challenges, this really could regain their independence, enable them to be able to um, you know, communicate with others to operate technology, operate their environments much more seamlessly. Uh, 
and also, I suppose, the prospect then of everyone being able to communicate in and that's know, right. Some sort that's of right. So, I mean, the, the goal of most of these companies is, you know, for for some of them, it's a very focused health based focus, but for many of them, it's really to try to um, move from the kinds of peripheral devices we're using: a mouse, a keyboard, a joystick to, you know, game or to operate in virtual reality or with our other technology and to replace that with direct brain-to-technology interface. Um, and, you know, again, that, that can be promising for people. It could be empowering for individuals. There's a lot of reasons that we should be hopeful about it if and only if we actually figure out a way to make sure that the data that is being gathered is kept by people and they have rights um, over their own brains and mental experiences, that it's not being commodified, misused, and you know, probed for all kinds of information that we don't want to reveal to others. Mm. That's the interesting thing about this, and, and possibly the terrifying thing about this as well, is that, is that I've read before that even when a person has a thought, there's electrical activity before they're aware they're having a thought. Plus also in you know the normal course of a day for many people, you can maybe have an unkind thought, but you're able to prevent that coming out of your mouth. <laughs> right. How do you right. filter a thought uh, at that no, stage? No, it's a great question. It's a great question. So, you know, these are the kinds of issues that I grapple with in, in my new book, The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. And I go through many of these different examples, such as the use already by law enforcement to use um, kind of pre-conscious signals in the brain. So showing a person, for example, a series of images from a crime scene and then seeing whether or not their brain unconsciously registers recognition of details that they shouldn't know about. Um, and to your point, you know, those unconscious reactions could, for example, be biases that you would normally filter, not mm. in the crime scene context, right, in a different context. Suppose I want to know what your implicit biases are, and maybe you've worked really hard to overcome those implicit biases. And so who you are as a person and who you want to share with the world and how you act with the world isn't consistent with those biases. Using these kinds of probes um, by other people, you could access that implicit bias and your automatic reaction to images or text or words, even though that doesn't represent you as you understand yourself and your true self. And so you know, there's, there's a risk, a significant risk that, you know, what we choose to share, how we choose to define ourselves and act in the world gets redefined through other people accessing our brains and, and mental experiences through neurotechnology. Nita Farahani is a law professor at Duke University, plus also the author of The Battle for Your Brain. Nita, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Moncrief, weekdays at 2 p.m. on News Talk.